No cameras for the Chad Day Bell trial? Well, unless the court changes its mind, which it may just do that. Richard Allen update. We're going to bring that to you. A tip line for the Suzanne Morphew case. Were the roommates texting during the killing in Idaho? Caitlin Armstrong escape video. Carly Russell is guilty. Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie's parents meet face to face in court. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below and hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on any of your favorite podcasting apps. For those of you that have been watching for a while, you know that I've been trying to cut back on my energy drink intake because I feel like lately they've been making it more difficult to fall asleep at night. And if you've been a fan for a while, you know I also don't drink coffee. So I've been trying these little Magic Mind bottles. So if you're like me and you don't like the crashes and jitters that come from coffee and energy drinks, then you have to try out my new favorite caffeine hack, Magic Mind. I love that they are small and easy to transport. I usually drink them on the way to work in the morning, and by the time I'm at my desk, I am ready to take on whatever craziness is coming my way. I'm looking into stocking the fridge here with Magic Mind so that my whole team can have the same benefits. And here's the exciting part. They've given me a fantastic discount code. All you have to do is go to magicmind.co backslash crime talk and use the code CT40 for 40% off your first subscription. Or if you aren't into that, you can get 20% off your first purchase. But wait, let me break it down for you. With the subscription, you're getting a total of 40% off, which comes to around just $3 per bottle. That is a steal. I'll leave the link in the show notes. And the best part is that they have a money back guarantee because you know it's always about the money. So why wait? Head over to www.magicmind.co backslash crime talk and use the code CT40 to supercharge your day with Magic Mind. Remember the discount code CT40, crime talk 40. All right. Let's go ahead and open the record and call the first matter on the docket for October 12th of 2023. So the court in the Chad Day Bell matter issued an order, and it says that uh, basically the defendant's motion to allow cameras and live streaming in the Fremont County case number uh, 22CR-21-1623. And that was filed back on uh, September 29th of 2022. The court entered an order on October 12th of 2022 addressing the court's revocation of the camera coverage of this case and denied the motion to reinstate the the cameras at the defendant's trial. At that time, that case was set for trial with Fremont County case number 22-21-1624, also known as Lori Vallow. Now, the court said in this order, as stated on the record during the status conference held on October 10th of this year, and pursuant to various court rules, the court will hold a hearing on the issue on November 29th of 2023. 
and any briefings on this issue are due no later than November 22, 2023 at 5 p.m. So what does that mean? Originally, Judge Boyce said there will be no cameras in the courtroom, but he's willing to have a hearing on it, at least be heard, and make a decision. Obviously, the defendant, Chad DeBell, wants cameras in the courtroom. I agree with Chad DeBell and his attorney, Mr. Pryor, on this issue. And hopefully, hopefully, the news organizations that have sought have all cameras at the Brian Koberger matter also join in and say, hey, judge, we want to televise this for the world to see so that everyone gets to see how justice is made and applied in Idaho and to see if it is, in fact, a fair trial. The government should have nothing to hide. And frankly, we got to see the Lori Vallow trial. We just got it late. So bring it on. Let's do that. Next on the docket, Delphi. That's right. The Delphi murder suspect, Richard Allen, will appear in court next week for a new hearing. However, unlike other court appearances, this one will be held at the Allen County Courthouse. Now, as you uh, may recall, Richard Allen is facing multiple counts of murder in the 2017 deaths of Abby Williams and Libby German and has been ordered to appear for a status conference at 2 p.m. on October 19th. So attorneys for the defense and the prosecution have been directed to arrange their schedule in order to attend the hearing, which is set for, like I said, the Allen County Superior Courthouse. According to the court, the purpose of the proceeding is to discuss the upcoming October 31st hearing in which other matters which have recently arisen. Now, the court will prepare the transport order, uh, commonly referred to as a writ, so that Mr. Allen can be moved from the Westville Correctional Facility to the courthouse. Now, earlier this week, the uh, special judge assigned to this case, Judge Fran Gull, um, ordered the state to turn over all discovery evidence no later than November 1st in response to a motion filed by the defense. Now, the prosecutors said they had no objection to that deadline whatsoever. Frankly, the fact that it hasn't all been turned over as of yet, well, that'd be a little appalling. But hey, that's are you starting to notice a trend here in all the cases that we talk about? Discovery's turned over late. Discovery's turned off late. And when, if ever, does the prosecution get spanked? Very rarely. Well, I guess we did have the uh, Morphew case where the prosecution got spanked. And I guess they did take away the death penalty for Lori Vallow when the prosecutor got spanked for turning over discovery late. But even then, it doesn't really seem to matter. It's always not that big of a deal. Anyway, this week, the prosecution also filed its response to allegations regarding Allen's treatment in the prison and the defense's contention that the correctional officers overseeing Allen are linked to a movement known as Odinism. In September, Allen's attorneys laid out an theory claiming that the murders of Abby and Libin were ritualistic in nature, and their filing also accused uh, the correctional officers of being part of the white supremacist group and pointed to patches on their uniforms as evidence. The defense alleged mistreatment and intimidation of their client by these correctional officers. Now, in its response, the state said that the correctional officers wore patches that could have been misinterpreted. In sworn affidavits, the uh, correctional officers denied being part of any cult or any white supremacist group. 
course they would, I would assume. Now, I'm assuming we'll take them at their word that they are not a part of any of these groups, but I doubt that they're going to come out and admit to that because they'd probably lose their jobs. Anyway, in separate uh, court filings, Allen's attorneys asked that the court to toss out the search warrants in the case, and they motioned for the judge to quash subpoenas from the state seeking Allen's medical and mental health records from his time while he's been in custody. The basis for the suppression of the evidence seized by the search warrants is that there were material misrepresentations made in the affidavit that the police knew were false or reckless disregard for the truth, and therefore any evidence should be thrown out. As it relates to medical records, um, normally, because of HIPAA, you cannot go and get somebody's medical records um, unless, of course, they sign a waiver. I'm not sure how the prosecution thinks they're going to get those medical records. We're all going to have to wait and see. Next on the docket, Suzanne Morphew. Well, Suzanne Morphew's husband, Barry, was obviously originally charged with her murder despite there being no body. However, the charges were dropped the following year, and no new arrests have been made. Well, that's prompted the detective to set up a hotline. So the public is now being asked to report any information about this case by sending an email to the CDPS underscore Suzanne Morphew underscore tip line at state.co.us or by calling 719-312-7530. So if there's any new information, let everybody know. Now, let's Face it, ladies and gentlemen, we don't need to be sending the police, wasting their time. So don't send them information of some hunch or suspicion that you think you may have. Actual evidence that you can prove. That's what you need to send to these police officers if, in fact, you have new information. Otherwise, it is a waste of resources. Now, the uh, Morphews, uh, Barry Morphew, and the daughters have also issued a fresh plea for new information. The attorney for the Morphews, Iris Itan, uh, stated that uh, the Morphew family wishes that all hands are on deck to find the person or persons responsible for Suzanne's death. The Morphews also want to send love to Edna Quintana's family and hopes that authorities soon find her. Now, Suzanne Morphew's remains were discovered in a remote field near uh, Moffitt uh, County in Sawatchee County, 50 minutes from her phone. Police were initially uh, searching for Quintana, who vanished on May 3rd. Now, at the time that Suzanne Morphew disappeared and her husband's marriage was uh, breaking uh, down and uh, she was undergoing cancer treatment for the second time in her life. Now, both parties uh, apparently had been engaging in some extramarital affairs. And in the days before she vanished, Morphew texted her husband to say that she was done with their relationship. Morphew's bike was discovered discarded in a ravine later on the day that she disappeared. Now, police conducted a search of the uh, couple's $1.5 million mansion. Well, $1.5 million mountain home. I wouldn't call it a mansion, but a mountain home because $1.5 million in the mountains here doesn't really go as far as it used to. Anyway, Barry was arrested almost a year after her disappearance and charged with first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and attempting to influence a public servant. In the 130-page affidavit made public back in September of 2021 after Barry was arrested, prosecutors suggested that from 2.47 p.m. on May 9th, 2020 until 5.37 a.m. on May 10th, 2020, he took steps to dispose of evidence of Suzanne Morphew's disappearance and death, created a false alibi for himself, and staged a crime scene. 
The charges were later dropped without prejudice, which means that they could be recharged if new evidence comes to light. And prosecutors said they wanted more time to find the body. In fact, prosecutors said they knew exactly where the body was. They were just waiting for the snow to melt. Apparently, they had no clue where the body was. Kind of like the whole case in that particular uh, case against Bory Morphew. The cops filed the case and the DA filed the case prematurely. Anyway, the couple's two daughters, Mallory and Macy, have also supported their father, Barry, since the arrest. The case was abandoned shortly before trial and uh, Mr. Barry Morphew launched a $15 million defamation case against the local authorities, which is still pending. Now, this is probably the story of the day, ladies and gentlemen, the Brian Koberger matter. Were the two surviving roommates in the off campus University of Idaho rental home in Moscow, Idaho, were awake texting each other during the massacre that left four of the friends dead last November? Well, according to a new report, that's what they're saying took place. Now, the 4 a.m. home invasion attack killed Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Zaina Cronodal, and Ethan Chavement on November 13th of 2022 in the early morning hours after they'd all spent a Friday night out with friends before the Thanksgiving break. The revelation from a lengthy air mail story is attributed to a grand juror on the case who allegedly leaked the information to the Gonsalves' father, although the reporter conceded that neither Gonsalves nor his attorney agreed to comment on the question of whether this was an accurate statement. Now, the court has issued a restrictive gag order on the case, and neither Steve Gonsalves nor his attorney immediately responded to uh, questions from anyone regarding this new claim. However, the family in a statement called the claim a very poor attempt at getting attention and obviously fictional. In the statement, it says Steve had been told that the two survivors allegedly had not only been awake while the killing had taken place, but that they had heard everything, the report states. More astonishingly, his grand jury source alleged that the two girls had been texting one another as the murder methodically went from one room to the next. Now, according to these documents unveiled back in January, at least one of the surviving roommates saw something suspicious five months before a grand jury indictment uh, stripped Koberger's defense of a chance to fight the uh, allegations at the preliminary hearing, which is used to see if there's, in fact, probable cause. Now, on the second floor, allegedly, of the three-story house, the roommates told police that she awoke to noises around 4 a.m., sounds that she believed came from the Gonsalves plane with her dog on the top level. Police would later find Gonsalves and Mogan dead in the other upstairs bedroom. Then, according to the probable cause affidavit, she thought she heard Gonsalves say, there's someone here. She peeked out of her room but didn't see anything, according to the probable cause affidavit. Around this time, according to investigators, Kernodal was still alive using the TikTok app on her phone at approximately 4.12 a.m. The housemate soon thought she overheard crying from Kernodal's room, which was on the same floor, according to the affidavit. She peeked out and overheard a male saying, it's okay, I'm going to help you. She opened her door for the third time and saw a masked man in dark clothes with bushy eyebrows leaving through the rear sliding door. She described him later to the police as not very muscular but athletically built. 
She froze in shock, according to the court's documents. He walked by her out the door. Police believe the four victims had all been stabbed repeatedly before 4.25 a.m. Now, police did not receive a 911 call until around noon the next day. It came from one of the survivors' phone, according to police, but they have declined to reveal who actually made the call. Responding officers encountered a horrific scene with a key piece of evidence left behind next to Mogan's body, the K-Bar knife sheaf that authorities allege had Koberger's DNA on it. Now, the other surviving housemate, who is barely referenced in the probable cause filings, agreed to an interview with Koberger's defense lawyers in April after resisting a subpoena in the case. Police relied heavily on the sheath, the suspect vehicle, and the phone records in the probable cause affidavit. However, according to this air mail story, also hinted that they have a secret informant who would tighten the screws through some undisclosed testimony. Now, Mr. Koberger is due back in court on October 26th when the judge will hear argument on the defense long shot request to dismiss the indictment. We'll have to wait and see if that, in fact, is true as to whether they were texting the whole time. It wouldn't seem implausible uh, given that they heard what was taking place. You know, that's the way kids communicate these days. They don't call. They don't go see each other. They text. It'll be interesting to see what if uh, ever comes of that uh, information, if it's in fact true. Next on the docket, Caitlin Armstrong, killer yoga teacher, tries to escape. That's right. Cell phone video captured a Texas yoga teacher accused of murdering her boyfriend's professional cyclist lover running from police during a medical appointment. That's right. Caitlin Armstrong broke free from two correctional officers after visiting a doctor's office in Austin while they walked her back to the car on Wednesday. The video shows her brazen attempt at freedom in her eye-catching black and white striped jail-issued jumpsuit while officers chase her up a hill and stumble where Armstrong appeared to jump over a fence. As they were leaving the facility, she ran from those correctional officers and she made it about a block and a half. Both the officers who were pursuing her on foot never lost sight of her. Now, the correctional officers did not draw their firearms, but Armstrong was taken to the Dell Seton Medical Center after the attempted escape, probably when they were telling her, stop resisting, stop resisting. That happens sometimes when people escape. Anyway, she was taken out of the jail for a specialized doctor's appointment that could not be done at the Travis County Correctional Complex. Uh, Police were not able to say what kind of restraints she was wearing, and it's unclear how she broke free exactly. Police were unable to say for security purposes to ever disclose the security measures we use with people in custody. Now, as you may recall, we brought you the story. Armstrong has pled not guilty to murdering the competitive gravel and mountain bike racer from Vermont who was in Austin, Texas for a race when she was killed. Now, Wilson was shot to death when Armstrong allegedly flew into a rage when she learned the racer was seeing her boyfriend, a guy by the name of Colin Strickland. Now, the accused killer fled Texas after she was initially interviewed and traveled to Costa Rica. Authorities said that she got a nose job and dyed her hair brown after fleeing the United States, and she used her sister's passport to leave the country and went by several aliases while on the run. She was finally arrested after police received an anonymous tip that she had flown into a rage months before and surveillance footage um, outside of Wilson's apartment 
showed the yoga instructor's car. Now, Strickland has admitted to having an affair with Wilson and said he had dinner with her the night of the murder. Armstrong was allegedly tracking Wilson using the app that cyclists use and runners as well called Strava. Now, search warrants revealed that she was visiting a gun range with her sister before the killing and was given $450,000 by Strickland, who also admitted to purchasing the two firearms between the end of 2021 and the start of 2022 for himself and Miss Armstrong. She is likely to face additional charges for the attempted escape. She is currently being held in the Travis County Jail on a $3.5 million bond. Next on the docket, Carly Russell. Do you remember her? The Alabama kidnapping hoaxer, Carly Russell? Yes, that's the one. Well, she's been found guilty for faking her disappearance and wasting the police's time, resources, and effort. And the 25-year-old was uh, on Wednesday convicted of two misdemeanor charges after lying to police about seeing a child on a highway and being abducted. Each charge is a misdemeanor and carries a potential of up to one year in jail. Now, she was a nursing student, Miss Russell was, and she captured headlines after she went missing while making a 911 call on July 13th, during which she reported finding a toddler by the side of the road. She then called her brother's girlfriend, claiming the same sight, and screamed down the phone. After she turned up two days later, claiming that a man with orange hair abducted her, she told police that she had been kidnapped and spun a somewhat elaborate tale about escaping, gaining her freedom. There was a huge search conducted for Russell with her now ex-boyfriend sharing loving photos of the couple together after she initially had been found and mentioned that she was falsely accused of being involved in her own disappearance. But he kept his faith and continued the desperate search for his girlfriend. Well, Russell later admitted she made the whole thing up, confessing in a written statement that the kidnapping never occurred and it was a mistake. So on July 28th, the police chief announced criminal charges against her and a judge um, has ordered her to pay nearly $18,000 in restitution for the charges and suggested that she serve up to one year's in jail. She didn't suggest it. She was ordered to serve one year in jail. So Russell then is filing an appeal to the circuit court, despite having obviously admitted and falsifying the story. Uh, her attorney stated that we stipulated and appealed this case, and the reason behind it is that they're trying to ask for jail time, and we totally disagree with that, according to Miss Russell's attorney, a guy by the name of Emery Anthony. So, in fairness, there's no need to have a trial here, knowing their position, so we have stipulated and appealed the case, and we'll start anew in the district court. So basically what happens is when you plead guilty in misdemeanor court, you can appeal to the district court. It really just buys you time. When you're found guilty and you just don't like the sentence, that's not a basis to appeal. Uh, basically, the prosecutor wanted jail. She didn't want to go to jail. So they are doing what lawyers do sometimes, and they're dragging things out. Next on the docket, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie's parents meet face-to-face, -face, at least in court. So Gabby Petito's parents came face-to-face -face with Brian Laundrie's mother and father in a uh, courtroom showdown on Tuesday. It was the first time they've met since Petito's 2021 slain and her boyfriend's admission he was responsible for her death. Now, attorney for the murdered 22-year-old blogger's parents deposed Christopher Laundrie, Brian's father, as part of their ongoing civil suit against the couple and their attorney, Stephen Bertolino. Now, the accused killer's father showed no remorse on the stand, and listening to his testimony was somewhat gut-wrenching. It was extremely hurtful to listen 
to someone that has no remorse and no compassion for the girl they would call their daughter-in-law. That's according to Ms. Petito's mother, Nicole Schmidt, uh, made those statements after uh, court. Schmidt watched the laundry deposition live over Zoom while Gabby's father, Joe Petito, was in court. Uh, Brian's mother, Robert Laundry, was also on hand, and it was difficult in the room with Joe and Nicole on Zoom asking those questions, knowing how difficult it would be for them to relive it all, said Pat Riley, an attorney for the Petito's parents. Now, the suit against the Laundries alleges that they were aware that Gabby's killing, but refused to divulge information as the case proceeded. Now, their purposeful inaction, the case asserts, caused them severe emotional distress, deserving of financial compensation. Now, Petito, for those who don't recall, was traveling across country with Brian Laundrie when she vanished back in August of 2021. Laundrie returned to his Florida home without her on September 1st, eventually leading police to call him a suspect in the case that um, obviously everybody was watching throughout the country. Now, Petito's strangled body was discovered in Wyoming Grand Teton National Park on September 19th. The Laundries reported their son missing two days earlier, and Brian's remains were not found until almost a month later in a park in Florida. Now, authorities determined he had killed himself and found a written confession to his girlfriend's murder in a letter in his backpack. His parents have never been criminally charged in relation to the case, and Petito's parents also sued the Moab City Police Department in Utah, arguing they deprived Gabby of her safety and ultimately her life. The Moab police officers had pulled the couple over for speeding and found Petito's bloodied and distraught. The cops separated them for the night but made no arrests. Petito was killed days later. Her parents' jury trial case against the laundries is scheduled to begin in May of 2024. I think the Petito's case is somewhat tenuous, but the legal standard in a civil case is that the court cannot dismiss it. It's kind of like the same legal standard for a preliminary hearing. You must view all the evidence in the light most favorable to the prosecution. Same thing in a civil case. The court must view all the statements as true and view all the evidence in light in favor of the plaintiff, even though they could be totally bogus. That's the standard. So you get to go through discovery. Then everyone will file motions for summary judgment to say that there's no cause of action in this particular case. Um, inaction is not a crime. You have no duty to report a crime. Um, so I understand their grief, but I think it's a case that will ultimately end. Who knows, maybe I'm wrong, but we'll have to wait and see. And finally today, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Callie Robertson. She was arrested Sunday morning after a confrontation at the mobile home park where she and the 76-year-old victim live in separate residences. According to the complaint, charging Robertson um, with battery on a victim, 65 years or older, she became upset with Daniel Powell, who would always speak with her while she walked her dog. Robertson, police say, took an unsecured bag of dog feces and pushed it into Powell's face, leaving feces smeared on his face and the bag on the ground. The dog waste bag matched those in the defendant's possession, and she ultimately admitted to the battery, according to the police officer's notes. Now, Robertson, who was released from jail uh, Monday after posting a $2,500 bond, pleaded not guilty to the third-degree felony. 
Yes, although a simple assault, you know, getting assaulted with dog poop, normally no big deal. It's a misdemeanor. You do it to an at-risk adult, that's right. It's a felony. It's dumb. It's dumb for um, putting dog poop on anybody. Uh, but Miss uh, Robertson, um, what can I say? Doing it to an old person, at-risk adult, an elderly? That's just dumb. Anyway, you're a dumb criminal of the day. All right, thanks for watching. As you can see, we are back in the United States, back in the Crime Talk studios. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.